This is The Other 51. I'm Brian, and this week, my guest is Chuck Pollock, former sports editor of the Olean Times-Herald. Chuck Pollock, my very first boss in journalism, uh, former sports editor of the Times-Herald and Olean. Welcome to The Other 51. Thanks for joining me today, sir. I'm very glad to join you, my friend. Little did I know that I'm the guy who started radio and TV, and you're doing the bo- the podcasts. Right? Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. So um, I can't believe we're talking on a Zoom call. That is very weird to me. Just that that I'm on that you're on Zoom is amazing for one thing, but the fact that we connected on Zoom is fantastic. It, it is. You know, it's it's weird, Brian. I you know I I taught that uh, sports writing class at St. Bonaventure for eleven years. And about the time COVID came, there was really a thought that we should be doing this on Zoom, doing classes on Zoom. And I wanted I wanted no part of that. But I've done a couple of classes for other people, not unlike the one we're doing now. And it's it's been fine. I mean it's it's worked out it's worked out fine. But as you know, I'm a cyber moron, so I need to be led by hand. Even this meeting was connected by my wife. <laughs> We got there. We got there. I was having some flashbacks to uh, to my days in the in the early 2000s when we were trying to do stuff online with new computers at the office and I'd have to help you out or help somebody else out at the office. It's embarrassing to me that not only am I not good at it, um, I don't care. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, the real the, the real issue to me is I, I am so suspicious about social media. I'm not on the book of face. I'm not on Twitter. My feeling is that my career has made me a public person. So that's enough. I don't need, I feel as if a lot of people who are online at various sites, no matter what it is, a part of it, they have a longing to, to be noticed, to be somebody. And that's their avenue. Well, you and I worked in a business where we already had that. And of course, you haven't outgrown it because you're in the prime of your career. But in my case, being a geezer, I I'm fine without without being on. Something like this is fine. But to me, this is just kind of like radio in a different format. So Right. Well, um, we want to get into radio too, and we got a lot to talk about, a lot of ground to cover. But recently retired from the Olean Times Herald, um, after fifty something years writing there. Uh and it's very funny to, for me to think, you know, how influential you are as a sports editor, as a newspaper guy, because you didn't come up as a newspaper guy. You were a radio guy back in the day, right? I Yes, I absolutely was. I, I majored in radio TV at Ithaca. And, and Brian, when I graduated, it was 1967. It was the heart of the Vietnam War, and all of us knew we were going. So I applied for Navy OCS. Most of my friends did Air Force, but there were two things about that. One, I had no desire to fly. Two, I knew that my eyes probably wouldn't pass the test, but also the commitment for Air Force was four years. Mine was uh, three years in the Navy. And uh, this is kind of a weird story, but it is interesting. Uh, So I had to go take the test for Navy OCS, and you didn't get in unless you at least had an undergraduate degree. So I take the test, and it was brutal. It was all math and science. The only science course I had at Ithaca was biology. And so by some miracle, I passed it. And the next step was taking an interview with some officers to see if you were fit to be an officer in the Navy. 
And so I get three young punk officers. And one of them looks at my resume and he says, oh, I see you're a radio TV major. I'm kind of interested in what your theory is on that 1938 Orson Welles War of the Worlds fiasco. So I gave him five minutes of my best stuff. <laughs> and these guys, all of a sudden, are sitting there bug-eyed like, oh, my God, this is the smartest guy we've ever talked to. <laughs> and I walked out of there knowing full well the last paper I wrote at Ithaca was about guess what. <laughs> so um, I, I got assigned to a uh, uh, naval air station in Norfolk. I was a communications officer. I knew nothing about the equipment. Isn't it funny? I've kept through it <laughs> to this day. Knew nothing about the equipment. I had five people on my crew. My job, because I had a top secret clearance, was to take secret and top secret messages, decode them, and then take them to the people they were destined for. And it was fine. And I was told, you know, don't get used to it. You know, you go through half your your stay, and then you're going you're going to Southeast Asia. Well, the nice thing about being in a communication center was that uh, a lot of messages came in there. And one day, a message came in from one Richard M. Nixon. And as I scrolled through it, it was a list of junior officers who were being let go early as a cost-cutting measure. And sure enough, as I scrolled down alphabetically, I soon came to Charles P. Pollock Jr. And I did not let the door hit me in the ass. <laughs> but the thing about it is, Brian, I was not ready to look for a job. I didn't have an audition tape. And I borrowed a tape recorder from one, one of my wife's uh, friends at work. She's a physical therapist. She'd actually gotten a job in Virginia Beach. And so I went to a JV high school football game and made a pretty antediluvian uh, audition tape. And it got me a job in Altoona. And so I was there for six months and they realized, wait, we really don't need two sports guys. But the guy in charge there knew a person in Bradford and they called me and they hired me there because they, in Bradford, they were desperate or a play-by-play -play sports guy. So I went up there and I was I was there two and a half years. I loved the job, I didn't like the money, but that's kind of, you know, it's kind of like the, the uh, priest taking a vow of poverty and making the parishioners <laughs> swear by it. So uh, I got a call from Mike Abdo, who is the sports editor, he and Bob Davies. And they basically said, can you type? And I said, yes. Which is funny because you alluded to how I type. <laughs> I'm still a one finger typist with a middle finger for spacebar. So they said, listen, and I'd never written a story at Ithaca, ever. You know, as a broadcast guy, I was writing broadcast scripts. So they said, we can teach you to do this. Well, they never taught me anything. And I don't say that negatively. All I knew was to write the way I talked. And as you know, what's the byword for our business? Write the way you talk, only better. So unintentionally, I had a column voice and didn't even realize it. So, you know, I started there in 1973 and stayed until um, May 31st of this year. It was 50 years, five months. And oh, by the way, I did not retire. Uh, I made that clear in the column because I didn't want people to think I was done because some of my critics would often say, geez, you should have retired years ago. Well, I don't think I didn't want them to think they got the best of me on that anyway. But beside that, I'd want to work 
but uh, the circumstances at the at the Times Herald were such that uh, it was time to go. And there were two reasons. One, I can explain as an aside, but the first one involved J.P. Butler, who was the Bonner Beat guy, who came on somewhat after you, and all of a sudden, when I became a senior sports columnist and he took my job as sports editor, he quickly tired of the 60-hour, uh, six-day weeks. Worst of all, his favorite part was to uh, cover the Bonnies. And he wasn't getting to do that. He'd write the advance, he'd do the recruiting stories and all that, but he didn't actually do games. And so he did two last year, one of them in Chicago. So I, I could tell it was wearing him down and he'd been complaining for a while. And I said, well, the minute you're ready to leave, I'll go too. So in April, he called me when I was in North Carolina with my wife and he said, I've had it. I said, okay, I'm out. And we decided against April 30th because he wanted to stay until the end of uh, the spring sports season, which as you know, is brutal. And we had some people who played late into the season. And I just May 31st worked out for me. So I was gone first. But the reason I left is that I knew JP was leaving, which he will do on Friday. So uh, I did leave. And, you know, within a day after I ran my goodbye column, now I did not tell management that I was leaving um, for a couple of reasons. Not the least of which was, I did not mention either the publisher or the managing editor in my final column. The current people at the paper did not mention them for good reason. So uh, I sent an email about 11 o'clock at night, the day before the column appeared, hoping he wouldn't read it, the managing editor wouldn't read it and go on and try to change that in my copy, which did not happen, thank goodness. And so that ran, but he never literally knew until he picked up that day's paper. And I know he was miffed. But the other reason was, besides JP, and this is just kind of a personal thing, but it was not insignificant. About a year and a half ago, JP came to me and said, listen, the managing editor is going to call you and ask you to take a pay cut. And I said, said I mean, we had a good deal. You know, when, when they when they told me I was no longer sports editor, but they absolutely wanted me to stay as a columnist, I was fine with that. The deal was I'd write them three columns a week, guarantee them three columns a week, uh, and they'd pay me $1,000 a month, which I felt was more than fair. Uh, I didn't need the money, and that was, that was a good deal. So I told JP, I said, all right, when he calls... I'll agree to take half pay as long as that $6,000 savings goes to keeping the sports department viable. So weeks went by, never got a call. And then I get my next check and it's for $500, half pay. He never called me, never had the courage to call me and say, listen, he just decided that secondhand, hearing it secondhand, he probably knew what I was gonna do. So he just act. Worse, and this is a matter of pride, never even bothered to call me and thank me for being a good soldier. So I didn't feel that I owed them anything. And I wasn't uncomfortable with the decision. But I'll tell you, Brian, the day after that was official, it was like, oh, my God, because that's when 
the Stefan Diggs fiasco with McDermott was going on when it was revealed that it was, and I'd written this a week after it happened, but it was finally revealed on a national basis that it was, it was McDermott who called that ridiculous defense in the 13 seconds that they ended up losing the game in. And then they had this whole fiasco with um, all of a sudden Leslie Frazier taking a season off. And I wrote right away, <clears throat> he is not taking a year off. He was pushed out, which also has come to fruition. So our, there's all this stuff going on. I can't read about it or write about it. And just by a miracle, that very same day, the day after my column appeared, John Anderson, whom you know well, uh, he called me, said, you got to come to work for me. And we had a short conversation. I said, when do, you, when do I start? And uh, I started last Saturday. So a lot of uh, one sidetrack I have to take here is, um, as you mentioned, your typing style, and I mentioned it in the in the piece I right. wrote about you. And that is like one of the things that like went, went, went on Twitter and on social media and when people were, were knowing you from, you know, the Buffalo media or wherever, the, the typing style. So where did your uh, your unique style of typing come from? And did you ever try to learn not to do it? You know what, Brian, I, I took sort of a typing class in um in high school, but it never stuck. I never had to type a lot. And as you know, um, I adapted pretty quickly to using the one finger method. And really, I uh, tell people all the time, I type fast enough, it's as fast as I think. And that's really all I need to do. So I never felt, I never felt obligated to learn but I do remember, and this even preceded your days in our newsroom, people would come through the uh, newsroom on tours, and basically the tour giver would say, hey, don't type like this guy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> they were absolutely right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, um, I, I, I never, I didn't, it wasn't necessary. I, I, I'll come down to that. I'm never going to be a uh, court stenographer. <laughs> But it's good enough for what I do. And after all, now at my age, it's too late to learn. <laughs> you mentioned uh, when you got hired by uh, by uh, Abdo and Davies and that sports department. And obviously, you know, working in that department, they loom large even, you know, I was there 20 years, I think, after they passed and long after they passed. But that that their influence was there. What was it like? What did you what tell me about that department? What was it like? Why were how and why were they so good at what they do? Why were they so influential for you? And how were they influential for you in your career that followed? Well, they were the antithesis of each other. And the reason they hired me was that Chuck Ward was the third sports writer in the department then. And he, as you know, went Cityside and eventually became managing editor. And subsequent to that, when the paper was sold, he became a consultant for one of the uh, chains. And then ultimately he came back as publisher and really saved us. Although for the last, I would say 10 years, uh, we have not been so fortunate to have people in, in, in positions of power. But Mike, Mike was educated only through high school went in the military and came out, but he was a newsman's newsman. And he was never married. And all he cared about was the paper. Now this was 
my first first 15 years at the paper was when the Fitzpatrick family owned it. And family ownership is so different. They just, there were frequent raises. There were parties when people left or retired. Uh, the, the morale was terrific. It was a great place to work. And things started downhill once chains started buying newspapers. And it wasn't just us, clearly. Uh, but it was, it was troublesome to see what was, was happening. But Mike and, thankfully, Mike and Bob were spared that. Uh, Mike died in 1983 of organ failure. And in 1980, Bob Davies died of a heart problem. So they never were there when it wasn't family owned. But their attitude was infectious. And it was just passed on to people like yourself and Pete Doherty and Tom Missile and all these people who came after because their theory was simple. You don't count hours. You work until the job is done. And you have an obligation to do quality work. And Mike would spend 12, 16-hour days in the office at times because he had no place else to be. He would actually leave the paper sometimes at midnight, go have a couple of beers, and then come back. And I'd come in in the morning, and there he was. <laughs> so that was his approach to the job. Bob Davies was... A renaissance man and that's exactly the headline they put when i wrote uh, when i wrote after he passed because he was a tremendous person in various finer things of life he was big on food i mean he i wrote in my last piece that um he introduced me to to Oysters Rockefeller and Beef Wellington. He loved every kind of music from rock to uh, classical. Uh, he was a really flashy dresser. And one thing I mentioned that I've never forgotten this, in 1974, he and I were in a, uh, at the Bills playoff game against the Steelers in Pittsburgh at Three Rivers. And we were walking through toward our seats and Al Michaels, who was a, just a kid, uh, came out of the broadcast booth because he recognized Bob's flashy clothes from having done a Bonna game earlier that year. <laughs> and so that was the kind of person Bob was. Imagine this, Brian. Here's a guy who never got a driver's license, never owned a car. He was always counting on rides. He, I, he and I rode a lot of miles, and I learned a lot of things from him. He'd go to Bill's games, and he'd go to Braves games with me. And um, he traveled with the Bonnies. I mean, with the Bonnies on the mm -hmm. plane, on the bus. But he he was just a tremendous influence. And he was the voice of reason. Uh, whereas Mike was the voice of occasional maniacal outbursts. So uh, they were perfect. They were perfect. And, you know, and they disagreed at times, but it was never long. It was never long term. They, they put things together at the, by the end of a shift. But Mike could enrage people to the point where a female member of the newsroom at one point threw a typewriter writer at him. And this was not a portable. This was one of the old desk typewriters. <laughs> so she really needed to create a launch. And another grabbed a set of scissors and was set to go after him until somebody else from the newsroom held her back. Because um, Mike had a bit of a streak of misogyny to him. Uh, and this did not resonate well with the females. You don't the, say. 
in the newsroom, and he would express that in rather indelicate ways. So uh, they were they were perfect, and they were perfect for me. And I I was proud that I had that time with them. And then we were so lucky that we were able to hire. I was able to hire people whose work I saw. So a Pete Doherty, a Tom Roof, people like yourself. I knew already what they could do. In your case, I knew it was hereditary because I'd already hired your sister. But um, we just had people who had the same attitude. There was nobody who was afraid to work. Nobody got pissed because they they had to work extra hours. It was just kind of part of the deal. And I, I was always proud of that. But the people who set that standard were Mike and Bob. And Mike, of course, is the famous the famous uh, news is what people are talking about, which I learned from you, and I use that to my classes to this day. But you know, Brian, I me too. I went during my classes. I'd point that out because it makes sense, and I know that I expressed this to you as well. I would be in my class, and somebody will say, "Oh my God, I I have writer's block," hmm. and I would pretty emphatically tell them. There's no such thing as writer's block. It's possible there is if you're writing a novel. But if you're covering an event, you have one question to ask yourself when you walk out. What are the people going to their cars speaking about as they leave? And if you write about that, you're going to be right 100 times out of 100. That's what you should be writing, you know? Mm -hmm. And that and to me it was a simple it was a simple thing, but the way Mike phrased it, news is what people are talking about. Boy, it's perfect. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny. because like not all I, 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 I always have the caveat, like sometimes news is what people need to know about. Like, you know, sometimes it's not you know, you got to introduce them. You got to teach them about stuff or like uncover malfeasance or whatever. But that's pretty good. It is a pretty good guiding star for what we do. And just so simply put, too. Yeah, it, it is. And you're right. Be, uh, and I think that's a lost appreciation of what we do. But I've learned over the years that a big part of our job is teaching people and maybe they don't need to know it or want to know it. Um, well, they do need to know it, but maybe they don't want to know it. But that's part of our job. And I, I've, the response I got when I wrote my final column was beyond humbling. And I will say, as an aside, because I don't want to forget it. The piece you wrote about me and the piece that John Anderson wrote about me yesterday are two of the most flattering things to me that I've ever, ever experienced. But even beyond that, the emails, I probably got a hundred emails, texts, and phone calls when I announced I was leaving. And the comments people made and the impact they said that my stuff had made on their lives was, to reuse the word, humbling. And I, I do not for one minute take it for granted. And in many ways, uh, it was enlightening to me. And I, I just said to my wife uh, a couple hours ago, I said, you know, what Brian wrote and what John wrote the biggest surprise I got is that they noticed things about me that I would never have thought you noticed, you know, and in John's case, he was talking, he talked specifically about, about um, how supportive I was of female writers. 
well, you know, we, I had, I had your sister and, and, and I had Jennifer Marie Fry, who was unbelievably skilled mm-hmm. and, and, um, it, 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 it was just, I was blessed to have some really strong people around me who were females and I was always trying to be helpful when I was in a press box or whatever when it was a woman because I realized that we're kind of climbing a steep hill at times and uh it was I I just I wanted them to succeed I will say that so one of the things that uh you mentioned before we uh before we formally started recording that you had missed like the day after the column read your your goodbye column in the TH ran that you missed writing or that you missed having an about uh, a, an opportunity to write. And one of the things I wrote about this in the piece that, you know, stood out about our department back then in your department was you had a lo- we had a local column every day, no matter what, three, uh, 365 days a year, Christmas, Thanksgiving, dog days of summer. There was always a local column. Why was that so important? Why is that so important for a paper? And why do you think that's so meaningful to have that local voice every day? It's absolutely critical. And the tone for that was set by Mike Abdo. And Mike was the one who started what we call to this day, local notes. Now, Mike was a voracious reader of other papers. So a lot of times um, he would get pit, uh, bits and pieces, columns from the papers we got. We probably got 10 out of town papers. And that would be from the LA Times, Atlanta Constitution, Louisville Courier Journal. And he had all these sources and he just had a great eye for picking out uh, special things and just wrapped them into a package, telling people something they wouldn't have otherwise known. Mike occasionally would write an opinion piece, but a lot of it was the information he got from there. Well, clearly, I was in a great position to... um, to write more opinion type stuff because Bob Davies, as great a man as he was, he was, he would not have an inclination at all to write a critical column. And so that was it on that. Plus I did have the Bonnies and the Bills as sources. So there was a lot of opportunity for opinion type stuff. But the one thing I did learn was it didn't really matter down that left rail most people who read the sports section, that's where their eyes go first. And I know people didn't love every column I wrote or whatever, but I do know this, the people who enjoyed my stuff, they'd give me a chance every day. And if they weren't interested in whatever my topic was that day, didn't matter. They're going to come back tomorrow and read it. And um, sad to say, when, as the Times-Herald proceeded down this path to oblivion, as so many print newspapers are, people would stop me in the street. And this was flattering, but it was also almost embarrassing about the paper because they would say, the minute you leave the paper, I'm done because there's nothing else to read. And while it's very flattering, there's also a degree of humiliation for the paper. It doesn't say much for where the paper is is headed. But I do know and, and, and you know yourself, Brian, um, there was a time when the Times-Herald was circulating 26,000 back in the late 70s. And, you know, we had 120 employees, delivery trucks, and all this stuff. 
Well, obviously, once we we are owned by three straight chains, those numbers started to plummet. I believe now uh, we're under 4,000 home delivery plus oh, maybe wow. another 1,000 uh, newsstand. And so clearly younger people don't read the paper, have no need to, they can get it on their phone. But um, our way of fighting that, at least in the sports department was, we're gonna have a column every day. And so we always gave people something that they could read. And JP and I really tried to cover most of the week. And, but I would say in the last year, that has gone by the wayside. There are days and days that go by without without a column and partially because uh, the two remaining uh, sports guys, uh, JP Butler and, and Sam Wilson, they're overwhelmed with local stuff. But I think readers still gravitate first to a column, which, as you know, it takes all sorts of, of forms. It's not always opinion. Sometimes it's a it's a it's a mini feature. Sometimes it's a profile. Sometimes it's bits and pieces, but they'll still go there uh, ahead of anything else, unless you're a parent and your kid's playing softball for a land high or something. So that's kind of the way the business has evolved. But that I thought that was one of our greatest strengths. And as I was going to say, when you were there, there were a number of pretty successful regional newspapers of the mid-size range, uh, but none of them had a column every day as we did. In fact, there are days the Buffalo News does not have a column every day, nor does the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. So it's amazing how kind of what was once the most important thing in a sports section on a day-to-day -day basis has just kind of dwindled away. What did you, what do you like when you said like you missed having the, the stuff to write about or having an outlet to write about? Why, what do you, what did you miss about it? Like, what do you, what, what, what about writing? What itch does it scratch? I guess is a terrible way to put it. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I love the interaction with the reader mm -hmm. and knowing that people are reading the stuff and forming an opinion or whatever. And that's, that's, important to me the the visibility of the job and doing that knowing that you're getting people to think and informing of something they otherwise might not know is terrifically rewarding to me and you know one of the things i'm absolutely the most proud of is i answered every email now if I got a two word or one sentence email, I might not, I might not have to answer that. Anything else, uh, I answered everybody, critical or complimentary. And I did learn, and this was a valuable lesson for me, when somebody wrote something critical and I wrote back, they were in shock. Mm -hmm. And the reason they were is that they never expected me to respond. And oftentimes they would write back and have have softened their position because they they thought, oh my God, this guy is a human being. <laughs> and I have to say, I was never averse to saying to some of them if they, you know, if they cast me an opinion, I didn't I had no problem saying, hey, geez, I never thought of that. 
Mm-hmm. And um, but it was surprising. I think because of that, people people were reluctant to send critical things because they thought, you know, this guy's probably going to write back and tell me where I'm wrong <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, I I um I just always felt that was important. And 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 you you know this when you were there you and I were the most read people at the paper and that's been true of me through all the years since you left um and certainly whoever's covering the bonnies mm-hmm. that was the second most high profile person there were we lost so many good city side writers to frustration and annoyance and so forth. Brian, one of the things that bothers me now, and this is so funny, Mike Abdo basically had an approach to sports stories and it was doing, particularly games, do an advance, write the game story, do a follow-up. Mm-hmm. You would be hard pressed to find a follow-up on any city side story in our mm-hmm. paper anymore. And to me, that is a yawning gap and an invitation to losing people because you know once they've read your quote unquote game story in a in a city side context they have questions right and they're they're probably not going to be answered uh, and that's that to me deserts our charge in the newspaper business so um i got to ask uh, and kind of as we veer toward an off ramp here uh, i got to ask what was it like covering Buffalo sports back when you started the, at the TH. So you started in 73. So it's the bills, OJ, you're covering the Braves, the Buffalo Braves when the, before they moved out to LA, I know you're doing Bonnie's. I know you're probably doing Sabres. Just what, what, what are some of the good stories? What was Buffalo sports like back then to, to be a part of? Well, Brian, you already know the key answer to that. What it was like then was we had access, mm-hmm. you know, talk to any sports writer now um, covering sports, college or pro sports and their biggest complaint will be lack of access Mm -hmm. i um i uh went to my first bills preseason practice in august of 1973 and just by coincidence i'm walking on the field next to this Good-looking young guy, not real big, six feet, buck 80, and it's Joe Ferguson. So we're walking together, and we're heading toward the field. Now, keep in mind, this is always weird to me. Niagara didn't have a football team, so they had temporary <laughs> goalposts and so forth. But there's, a, I could go where I wanted. Some of the media was already there. So I'm walking next to Joe Ferguson, and... All of a sudden, this wide receiver, J.D. Hill, who was a number one draft choice of the Bills in 1971, yells, hey, rookie, over here. And he's standing there. And so Joe looks down. There's a football on the ground. And he picks it up and throws a 40-yard dart right between the four and the zero on J.D. Hill's chest. He didn't have a helmet on. So it was very easy to see how big his eyes got. (laughs) Well, he had been catching passes for two years from a rag-armed guy named Dennis Shaw, who was also a first-round pick of the Bills. 
And he, it was all he could do to catch it. And he just blurted out, holy bleep. That's the first time in two years I caught a ball without a hump in it. <laughs> and so, you know, so I go out on the field and it, it's just like you described. Practice would end. We just wander out, talk to Lou Saban, talk to OJ, who, you know, I I dealt with him until he left in 1978. And there wasn't a more willing and a, a absolutely accessible interview than him, you know, and he never realized that there was no such word as his self, but he was pretty articulate and very willing to talk. And, you know, if, if you didn't have a story, when you walked away from talking to OJ, you weren't listening. And, um, you know, it'd just be me and Larry Felser, somebody from the Democrat and Chronicle, uh, Van Miller, and a couple others, and we could just go where we want. There was no backdrop with a microphone or anything. We're standing in the middle of the practice field. And, oh, by the way, we could go to practice. <laughs> you know, none of that happens now. They pick select players. And and so, you know, that that has changed so much and is the biggest complaint my colleagues have. The other thing is, even on the college level, I started – during the second half of Larry Weese's last year at Bonham. The next year, Jim Sadlin took over. And when the game ended, the media, probably four or five of us, would go into the training room off the Riley Center floor, talk to Sats, and then walk through the training room into the locker room to talk to whoever we wanted. Now, as you know, not every college athlete is a great interview, but sometimes the not great interview still has a big game. But because we're in the locker room, if we didn't get much out of him, we can go to a teammate, you know, maybe an Essie Hollis or Jimmy Barron say, hey, what about such and such as game? And all of a sudden you got the quotes to go with your story, even though they didn't come from the party of the first part. And that's not, as you know, that's not, that doesn't happen anymore. Right. Now the coach comes out, sits in front of the logo board and gives his assessment and then a player or two win or lose. And that's it. And invariably, at least one of the two is not a particularly good talker, but it doesn't matter. You're not getting in the locker room to talk to anybody else. Now, I suppose in an extreme case, you could ask for somebody, but normally they do try to bring out the people you'd want to talk to, but you don't have the carte blanche that you used to now with the Braves it was it was the same uh situation back then and I really the first full season I had was Jack Ramsey's first season and they were good they that team that team was just really really good Bob Bob McAdoo and Randy Smith and Jack Barron and 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 Ernie DiGregorio and it was just a really good they could score like crazy could not stop anybody but they could score and they were entertaining as hell and uh it was so nice to walk into a locker room afterwards and see players they had they had beer on ice in the locker room, you see players loading up their, their duffel bags with beer before they <laughs> left to get on the bus. 
And it was just, you know, it was like real life. And, uh, but I will tell you, uh, my funniest experience covering the Braves was after they left. And clearly, Buffalo was not a bad market for pro basketball. And if John Y. Brown, who hadn't, who, who bought the team, hadn't just dismembered it, they could have lasted there a long time. So they decided one year, let's have an exhibition game here. This will be great. So they they have an ex exhibition game, probably eh, maybe 81, something like that. And the teams were the Pistons and the Sixers. And Dr. J was playing for the Sixers. And the center for the Pistons was none other than Bob Lanier. So the coach of the Pistons was one Richard Vitale. <laughs> and so the game starts and Dr. J goes nuts. He scores 18 in the first quarter of an exhibition game. And they eventually blow out the Pistons by 30 or whatever it was. So we go into the locker room down in the bowels of the Memorial Auditorium, which is where they play. And we hear Vitell screaming at the top of his lungs in the locker room. And he, I really have to figure out how I pass this on to you, but he basically start, is screaming, you SOBs and mofos, with your gold chains and your Mercedes. Hey, Dr. J, why don't you come down to the plane and dunk on me? He's going freaking nuts. So we're all got, we all have our ears pressed to the door listening to this barrage. So he, he comes out and we figured, okay, this is going to be a sanitized version. And he starts right in. Those SOBs. <laughs> he said exactly the same thing to us that he said to them. And I said to Milt Northrup, who was covering the Braves for the Buffalo News then, I said, Milt, this guy's not going to last until the middle of November. And I was a little bit wrong. I think he lasted until Thanksgiving, but he was just so invested and so emotional. He couldn't get the idea that, hey, buddy, you're playing 82 games. You better dial it back. And uh, but those are the type, you know, you you'd never have access to anything like this now. Anyway, you're not standing outside the locker room. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was that that was such a neat time. I did not do a lot with the Sabres because one, Eddie Donovan, the former Bonner coach, former Knicks president and general manager and so forth. He was the GM of the Braves. And of course, because of his Bonner ties. Mike Abdo had a compulsion to cover the Braves because of that tie. So that's why I did them. The Sabres, I did very few games, partially because there wasn't a local tie, but more importantly, you couldn't get a ticket. And it was sort of important for the fact that, hey, I'm reading about the Sabres. I'd like to go to a game. Oh, pretty tough to get a ticket. So it didn't serve the same purpose as the Braves, who did have tickets, and a lot of people loved to go because the game was, and in fairness, in some ways, hockey, hockey is a regional sport. I, I realize that's probably a little bit unfair now, the way that the NHL is 
composed. But back then, it wasn't the, the original six, but it was it was such that um, it was more northerly uh, based, I guess. But yeah, so that's why I got to do Braves games. And it was an absolutely fantastic experience. But also, you didn't have the prima donnas and the I mean, I cannot watch the NBA anymore. I don't care. And that's sad. But when that when those guys are playing, I, I started covering the Braves as a Knicks fan. But I'd be quick, quickly, as much as you can be a fan when you're covering the team. But I was a fan of the Braves because it was fun to see them do well. And when that when that building was full, it was rocking and it was a privilege to sit there courtside. So I'll get you out of here on this, this question. I ask every guest I've had on the podcast. What's the best thing you've read lately? You're going to be surprised I have an answer to this. A friend of mine, Kathy Zawicki, is a sociology professor at Bonna. And she kind of badgered me for about the last couple of months when I talked talk to her and I'd get an email or a text or something about reading The Boys in the Boat. And I had never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. Well, what it is, is the story of the University of Washington eight-man rowing crew that went to Berlin and won the gold medal. Well, you know, obviously the same the same Olympics that Jesse Owens dominated, and of course Hitler really he wanted these games to be an example of of uh, German supremacy. And first, you have a black man from the United States just stealing the thunder in the track events, but then his prized eight-man uh, race team got edged by a United States team from the University of Washington that was hurting and had all sorts of issues leading up to the race. And she was right. It was an absolutely fascinating book. Never would have picked it up unless she had recommended it. Awesome. Oh, I have to read it. Never heard of it. So I'll have to read it. It's on my on my reading, my summer reading list. So uh, uh, I'm sure. Consider me your teacher. Hey, Bri, read this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chuck. This has been awesome. Sorry we had to do it by Zoom, but this was fantastic. Thank you hey, for uh, joining hey, me. Bri, I'm never at a loss for words, and it's always fun talking to you. And thank you again for that wonderful, wonderful piece you wrote about me. I do not take it for granted and feel in some ways it was undeserved, but it, it was very, very flattering. And I thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to The Other 51. Special thanks to Chuck Pollock for appearing this week and to his wife, Vicki, for the help with the technical issues we had at the top of the episode that thankfully you didn't hear. If you like this podcast, you can check out all of our episodes wherever you get your podcast. You can rate us and review us. I'm told it helps people find the podcast. I don't know, but hey, give it a go anyway. Anyway, thanks for listening. And our theme music, as always, is by Ellie Moritz. <laughs>